Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Alicia Castillo-Holly. She is the CEO and founder of the Welding VC Club, a boutique investment group for accredited investors. WVCC allows members access to highly vetted post-seed deals alongside VC funds. She is an advocate for women's progress in entrepreneurship, leading the way with Women Get Funded, a global training program on funding. She has invested in more than 40 companies, has founded and co-founded over 15 companies and three non-profits. Dr. Castillo Holly was also the founder of Chile's first seed capital fund where she lived between 1996 and 2002. Hi Alicia, welcome to Women to Women podcast. Thank you for having me. So for our audience and listeners, what do you do today? I run an investment club. I uh I take vetted deals that are filling around with the lead VC fund and I analyze them and then we uh we present it to our membership and then everybody makes their own decisions and then we invest in companies. We've invested in 23 companies already, more than a million dollars. So clearly this was not something you decided to do when you were young. So what did you plan for yourself growing up? Well, actually I grew up uh thank you for the question I grew up in a little town called El Limon in Venezuela it's not even in the map so we didn't even make it there it hasn't grown much it's like a little village and when I was a child I wanted to be a scientist I wanted to work in genetics and I dream about mammoth and dinosaurs and covering the gene codes to recreate the to bring the fossils and recreate them and I did work on that for for 15 years so I was a scientist and then I'd realized that being a scientist was not uh going to lead me to what I wanted to leave I wanted to change of course I want to change the world and I wanted to uh, be able to feed the world because I read a book that uh, talked about my nutrition and then I that I'm going to start moving my genetics into building better plants and have more protein and have more nutritional value and then I work on that and then I realized that the path to prosperity and socioeconomic development was not through better nutrition but it was through entrepreneurship and access to capital so I moved from science to entrepreneurship to venture capital and in the process I also was uh, the product development for a Bayer and Shell joint venture and I lived in nine countries so I it's been an interesting life. I'm being, I'm very very blessed about the life that I've lived. It's been nothing short of magic. You mentioned you've lived in nine countries, you've visited more than 150 countries. It's like just hearing it is amazing. So what led you from Venezuela to US? At what point did that transition happen? I uh, I was an exchange student when I was 15. My parents were very concerned because I joined the Communist Party and at the time I wanted to be a communist nun and work in the forest and my parents were very concerned and then they they organized with uh, some relatives to have me in a little town called Lakewood in Chautauqua County in New York upstate New York so I went from one small town to another one um, I wanted to study physics at that time and genetics and then I went back I missed my country I went back and I said well I'm going to do something with with life and I went back to Venezuela I developed a career there and it was when my children were 7 and 9 actually the day my daughter turned 7 that I took the jump and I went to the US I did an MBA after having a very successful career as an academic and researcher and 
and a corporate leader, I decided I need to understand entrepreneurship. So I went to Babson, which is number one school in entrepreneurship. I got a scholarship too. And it was, it was interesting because I had lost, I lost all my money in Venezuela in a bank crisis. So I said, this is it. Took my kids to boxes and I arrived in Boston. That's how it started. Wow. That, that's such an incredible story. So just going back a little bit, what led you to research? What, what was your major in, you know, undergraduate school? I'm an engineer by training uh, and I like processes. So I, I've had a very unusual career. I was very smart. And uh, when I was in high school, I didn't have to study for the final exams because I always had hundreds and hundreds of grades. Uh, so my parents didn't know what to do with me. I got a job at 12. I got a job working with a researcher. I've always been very curious. So I worked on a researcher evaluating uh, beetles and virus transmission in beans. And um, as it turns out, if the bean leaves have little follicles, they, it bothers the, the beetles. So they don't go and they don't suck the sap and therefore they don't transmit the virus. So I noticed that by just pure observation. And then I went to the library and nobody has checked that. And then I said, oh, but there's something else. And then the professors of virology said, uh, well, wait a second, beetles cannot transmit viruses because the viruses, you need to, to suck the sap. And beetles, they, they chew, they don't suck. So I went back and then, and, you know, it's, it's just that curiosity. So if it doesn't work, why, why am I observing these? So I went back and then I found that the, the beetles have dual mouth pieces. And the virus was actually staying in the second mouth. And it's that, it's that curiosity that has led me to create great business models and understand why are we looking at one thing in one way or the other and why nobody's looking at this. So that's how I started. As it turns out, when I was 15, I won a prize because I was the first person to recognize that beetles could transmit viruses in beans, not because they were sucking at the sap, but because the virus was staying in the, in the outside of the mouth because everybody was looking at the inside and they were at the outside. It's just that level of curiosity and inquiry that, that I've carried that throughout my life. Wow, that's fascinating. Congratulations. That wouldn't have been easy, you know, being a 15-year-old trying to push your theory. So that, that's just amazing. Well, I use that to my advantage because what happened, <laughs> this is so interesting. So what happened is that nobody wanted to report that because nobody had done it. And we're here we are in Venezuela. And nobody had done, nobody wanted to report that. And I was like, no, but that's the way it works. That's the way I know, I know. And I kept going back and forth. And so they allowed me to be first author, which is something unheard of because nobody wanted to be embarrassed. That's actually what happened. Nobody wanted to be embarrassed. So I went up there and I presented this paper. And when I was 15, I looked like I was 10. So I was just very small and, uh, and very naive, but I was just fascinated about the discovery. And I think that and even today, that's something I look at businesses, you know, people are fascinated about what they discover and they're fascinated about their solution. It's not an egotistic, it's not about how, how important I am. Look at what I'm doing. It's more of look at what I resolve, look at the solution. So that that I've been carrying that throughout my life. And that and that is a lot of fun too. And it's exciting. And, and people look at that and it's like, oh, look at that. But the reality is that I was able to present that because nobody wanted to do that because they did not want to be a failure. And I didn't care. You know, I was 15. What am I gonna do? I, I don't care. So I, I yeah, so by the time I was by the time I finished college, I had already eight published papers. And I thought the world of myself, that was bad. That was bad. It's embarrassing how arrogant I was. Oh, no, absolutely not. That's just amazing. Eight papers. That's incredible. So how was it then you have this really established life in Venezuela, everybody knows you, you have done some amazing work there. And then, you know, really uproot your family and then move everybody to Boston. So here's the thing. This is what I, and probably if, if I may, you know, just the autistic part comes in. 
you know, successful people are not different than, than people who don't succeed. We just don't talk about the problem. So because we don't talk about the problems, people think, well, you know, you had it all going for you. And the reality is that we're just doing the best we can. So it was not that I decided one day I'm going to take risks and I'm going to go away and I'm going to do this. So the reality is that here I am in Venezuela, 26 years old, divorced with two kids, which was a very undecent thing to do. And it was by choice. It was just a little bit complicated. And I knew that I always wanted to uh, explore the world, but I had two little kids. So it's like, okay, how do we, how do we deal with this? And the father was not involved. And um, so how, how are we going to manage this? And then I wanted to do a PhD in France. And I had given that up because everybody told me it was too hard. I applied to a job in Germany and everybody told me it's going to be too hard in Germany because you have two kids, you're a single mom, who's going to take care of your kids. You know, I, I never thought being a, being a mom would prevent me from doing anything or being a woman. I'm like, okay, this is just what it is. I mean, some people are blind and they don't think, oh, I can't see blue. So I'm like, okay, this is just what it is. So what happened was that I always wanted to have my kids exposed to the world. I spoke English to them at home. Uh, now I speak only Spanish to them because I, I don't want them to forget Spanish. And it was always this notion, how can I be a better person? How can I improve? And how can I improve myself and my kids and the world? So it's like these three things. First, I have to take care of myself. Then I have to take care of my family. Then I then I take care of the world. I think I knew I wanted to go overseas. And uh, and then I couldn't do it uh, for one year. And uh, the company where I work closed operations. And I decided not to go to Colombia, which was an option. Uh, but Colombia was was mirrored with corruption. And it was a very dangerous country because they were putting bombs everywhere. These are things we don't think about, but they were putting bombs everywhere. And um, so I said, I can't be there with my kids. This is going to be too difficult. And then I wanted to go to Germany. And then my boss who worked at Bayer said, that's going to be too hard for you because you're a single woman uh, with two kids, not single woman, because you have two kids. So who's going to take care of your kids? And I'm like, well, they'll take care somewhere. Try to go to Japan. Mm -hmm. I went to the interviews with my kids. And could you imagine with my little kids? And they were so well behaved. And they're like, but you brought your kids and say, I don't have anybody to leave them with. So they're going to come with me. They're going to sit there and play. Uh, and of course, I didn't get the job. So I said, well, what can I do? And somebody had told me about entrepreneurship and I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. I did not know anything about the commercial world. My, my world was product development and lab. And, and uh, I love the lab. I adored working with plants and genes and just doing my, my things. And then I applied. Of course, I applied to Harvard. That was the first one. I went for an interview there. They said, oh, you should totally apply. But I didn't get there because I was so full of myself that I thought, oh, I'll just do the essay. My English was not that good because I never took like a proper training. So I fell and fell and fell. And then uh, and then I took a sabbatical. I worked for an opera house and I said, I'm just going to do the best that I can. But then the next year, I got accepted into Babson Boston College and Boston University. And I got scholarships on the three of them. And I had saved some money. So I said, that's it. I'm going to go to Boston. And then in three months, I'm going to go in Harvard. I'm going to convince them. And it turns out that I uh, once had landed in, in Babson. Uh, it was very difficult. My money never came. So I was living in the floor with a kid. And then I said, this is, I'm just going to have to do the best I can. And, and I stayed there and it was the best decision I could have made because I learned a lot about entrepreneurship. My kids were young, so they, they didn't know. I mean, we slept in the floor and I said, oh, we're camping. So I could fake it. A little bit until they went to school. Not until they went to school, until they went to somebody else's home. And then they realized that people didn't sleep on the floor in America, like I told them. It's like, no, everybody's everybody sleeps like that here. And uh, and I remember my house was so freaking cold that you know, you you had the cloud. I told the kids, this is so kids learn how to read. 
and write so you could see that oh and you know I could see my kids trying to make that oh it was just it, we laugh at that a lot so I think having humor was was fun but then that's that was the start and you know once you overcome those things there's no way you you accept any hardship after that I see now the situation with with Ukraine it's like these people are unstoppable because once you pass that hurdle then you you're just unstoppable not because you're strong but because you recognize that you are flexible and you'll figure it out. Yeah, so true. So you finish your MBA and then what happened next? So did you take up a job after that or did you start your own entrepreneurship uh, journey right then and there? No, I finished my MBA and I had no money and I had a lot of debt. Uh, I finished my MBA and then I said, well, this is an opportunity for me to create the life that I want. This is something that uh, they teach you at Babson. So Babson is in my heart. And so I went to the library. I print out uh, 140 countries. And by the way, I visited around 100, not 150. But I went to the library, I printed out 140 countries. And I said, where do I want to go next? So here's the thing. This is what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs figure out what they want to do first. And then they figure out how they're going to get that. Uh, where administrators feel, what do I have? How do I make the best of my resources? So entrepreneurs, what is the opportunity first? And then how do I get the resources? And I have to um, I have to claim Jeff Timonsen and... Uh, Steve Spinelli was, both of them were my professors for teaching me the theory of entrepreneurship. So that's what I did. I knew at that time that what I wanted to do was I wanted to work in socioeconomic development. So I wanted to bring entrepreneurship to the world because at that time in 96, not everybody knew about entrepreneurship. Now everybody knows, but not everybody knew. So I ended up with 112 company with 12 countries and then four, the last four were Switzerland because I had worked in Switzerland, Switzerland, Thailand, Chile, and Argentina. And I couldn't afford going there. I ended up just landing in Chile with uh, my two kids and a, and a business plan to create a center for entrepreneurship. And it took me four months. And we struggled. I mean, we were poor. Wow. Along this journey, you mentioned two of your professors. Were there people who really helped you get to where you wanted to be in terms of mentors or, you know, role models that really helped you push your agenda through? You know who really helped me were the cleaners. And, you know, nobody thinks about that. So I had it all in me, but I had two little kids. And I was a single mom. And the, the people that I'm most grateful to, they're not even LinkedIn. Nobody remembers them. My cleaners and my maids were the people that helped me get that through. Along the way, there were a lot of people that helped me, but there were a lot of people that did not help me because they could not conceive that I could do the things that I wanted to do. I think we look up role models and all of that, and we fail to see, you know, this is the ground base that helped me. My kids helped me a lot because they kept me center and, and rounded and, hey, you know, we're here. You can't just be overworking. So I had to be more efficient. One of the people that influenced me a lot was uh, Mila, Czechish woman. She was married to a scientist and, and she was completely crazy. And I want to be like her. She was 40 years older. She was my best friend for many years, completely eccentric and completely under discounted. So that's another thing that I see. Women are usually discounted. Women and minorities. So you don't, you don't see role models here and there that often. I think that uh, had an influence. My dad always told me you can do whatever you want. But my my dad didn't have the capacity to help me because he had other things in his mind. He's socialist. He, he thought money was bad. I think the people that I'm most grateful to are my cleaners and my mate. That's definitely the first time I heard that. Well, we just had a very interesting relationship. I kept moving and, you know, my kids needed to be taken care of, but I needed to be there. I didn't need a substitute mom, but I needed that support at home. So you mentioned, right, there were a lot of instances where you were in minority, right? Women in general are in minority. What were some of the things that really helped you 
get through those situations? And were there instances where you thought you were at a disadvantage because you were a woman? I never thought I was at a disadvantage because I'm a woman. I always thought I am in a different situation because I'm a woman. There's things that I can't do and there's things that I don't want to do. But I always say the difference between men and women is that the balls are high up in our bodies. We have different tools. I do not believe that women and men think differently. I think the world sees us differently. I don't I don't think I'm the nurturing, caring, collaborative type per se. And I see a lot of men that have those characteristics that we assign. If I felt discounted, and I just posted something on LinkedIn about that, I don't believe in the imposter syndrome. I believe in the discounted factor. People discount what I have to do, what I can't do, what I say. They discount it all the time. That is not my problem. That is their problem. So I just have to keep myself convinced that I can do whatever I do. And I will figure out a way to do that. And whoever is going to believe in me is going to believe in me. I have applied that always out of sheer necessity. You know, failure was not an option for me. When, when you leave your country and you have nothing and you go to another country and, and you can't buy food uh, because you don't have enough money, you don't have time to commiserate. You have to figure out a way to make it work and enjoy the process. Because I don't feel bad about being a woman. I like being a woman. And actually, I'm a little bit non-binary because I don't, I don't buy that thing that, you know, I don't need a prince to come and resolve my life. I, I don't believe in that. Uh, I don't feel the need to be protected. I need to be appreciated and, and respected like any human being. I don't feel being a woman makes me feel a higher degree of protection or acceptance or things like that. So I just don't feel that. Uh, I stay away from um, self-pity and criticism and, you know, people do the best they can and then just figure out how you're going to maneuver that. Uh, because life is too short to be complaining and life is too short to be to be resentful. So when you tell me, when did I feel I was a minority all my life? I mean, I always work with guys, uh, but I, I always saw guys as my friends. And that is something that I think we need to work more towards. When I talk about relationships between men and women, people tend to think there's work relationship. I need friends who are men and men needs friends who are women. And, and it's not a romantic relationship. It can just be just friendship. And I think there's a missing opportunity here in the U.S. and maybe in other countries, uh, but here in the U.S. definitely. Uh, and when people complain about Saudi Arabia, I happen to be in Saudi Arabia. And if I go out with a guy here, the assumption is there's something else beyond a potential friendship. And I think that prevents us from, from relating to each other. So I think that, that if there's a change that I would like to have is that particular change. I also think that women are very harsh on women and I want to change that because my value is the same value as another human being, but I'm not going to take BS from anybody. Even if it's men, women, something in between, I don't care. Women, particularly in developed countries, I live in the, I have lived in developing countries and developed countries. In developed countries, women are very harsh to each other and they assume motherhood on their own. You know, when people say, well, life work balance, I'm like, well, what about the men? Those kids had a father. And, you know, it's very interesting because I raised my kids without their father, but I always felt that, well, why does it have to be the woman who takes care of everything? Why does the woman have to be cleaning? Why can't you, the men clean? And I'm fortunate enough that my children, boy and girl, have created a very healthy relationship with their partners where it's more equilibrium. And I think that's something we need to come up with. So raising a kid kid is not an activity that is done by the mother only or the mother and the grandmothers and those things. And I think it's perfectly okay that we accept that we can do whatever it is that we want and just accept it instead of just talking about it. Most of the countries, the culture is very different. So do you think you having lived in nine countries really contributes to your unique perspective? Because you've seen 
things from different perspective, you know, based on the culture, the geography and everything else. Absolutely. And 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 then you have to add age. I just turned 60 year. But, you know, you have to add age too and being more respectful about differences and kinder as well. So just accepting people do the best they can. And instead of uh, having a confrontation and telling them, well, this is not the way it is. It is better to open your mind and say, why, why are you saying that? Why do, why do you believe that? We're a little bit brainwashed by everything we hear. So for example, I'm in Saudi Arabia. A guy tells me with permission of his female relatives, because a guy cannot talk to a woman without a female relative, which is something we don't understand because nobody tells us that. They tell us that we can't communicate, but they need a female relative and I need a male relative. So nobody talks about their side. And um, and he says, well, an Arab man would never mistreat their women like the Western people do. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And it's like, well, you know, you have to go out and shop. You have to go out and work. Uh, you get divorced and then people don't take care of their family. And it was so interesting because in that world, the children belong to the father after they're seven. So the fathers are very involved. And that's something that we don't see in this world. So we tend to analyze things and say, oh, it has to be my way. In the same way that religious is another big one. Cultures that have multiple gods are more balanced than cultures that have only one god. And I never thought about that. And it was by exploring things and how people relate and why people do this and that, broadening your horizon. Living in different cultures, what it does, it actually makes you less certain that you know. That's what it does. It makes you more curious. If you're going to be an investor, it's an invaluable trait to have because you start questioning things, not because you doubt them, but because you want to open your mind. You talk not to be right. You talk to find new ways of seeing the reality. So if you had to go back and redo anything in your life, what would that be? I would never redo anything. Along the way, were there ever naysayers for you? Everybody. I mean, oh, oh my gosh. And so, yeah, so I was, I was at a conference once and they asked me, how did I deal with that? And I said, well, the first thing is that if people tell you you can't do something, what they really mean is... I wouldn't know how to help you. Or if you want to be a little bit evil, they would tell you, I would be embarrassed that you show me that it can be done because I would be embarrassed. So those are the two things. I wouldn't know how to help you or you would embarrass me. But then you have to make a choice. Are you in there? Do you care enough for those people to educate them? Or, you know, you don't just don't have the time. So I'm, I'm not so nice as to try to create a revolution with everybody I touch because I don't have the time. And that was the gift my kids give me. Because if you have kids, you have to take care of them. There's no, there's no tomorrow. You need to change a diaper. And there's another diaper coming up. So you know, there, there's no way, there's no way you can, you can say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I mean, you can clean the house the next day, but, but you need to do it today. And so, so that sense of practicality helped a lot. If people say that they, you can't do something, it is their opinion. So I just don't make it personal. That's their opinion. It's not my opinion. Now, a lot of people not only told me I couldn't do things, but they told my kids, you know, your mom is a bad mom. Look at what she put you through. And, uh, you know, when they were teenagers, they, they bought into that. And they're like, why do you have to be like that? I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I can't help myself, you know. Can you imagine what it is living with me? You're going to go away, but I have to stay with me. So I put a little bit of joke to that. And uh, I never let anybody's opinion make me feel 
that I'm a bad person. And I probably learned that uh, living in Venezuela. And, um, you know, I made the decision to leave my husband when my daughter was two weeks old. And I never felt that I was very special about that. But so many people told me that I couldn't do that. And I'm like, well, you know, it's that's your opinion. It's not my opinion. The other thing that I learned in life, and this is, this is a very good advice, if I may, is to not engage with toxic people. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. This brings you down. <laughs> we as women tend to evaluate ourselves a lot. And we try to take everything very personally. We think we have to fix everything. We have to be there. Are there certain traits that you see in women all the time that some traits that really we need to work on so we can get better at whatever we want to achieve? And then some traits that we need to get rid of because they're not helping us as a whole. I think men have the same questions. I just don't know if we give them the opportunity to express that. Uh, so we're always having this balance about belonging to a tribe, being independent and being independent. And we need to balance that because we live in a society and we need to take care of ourselves, but we also need to take care of our relationships. I don't particularly see as women having a certain set of criteria. I think that is all socially constructed. I think we need to take care of ourselves first before we take care of the others. In the case of women, in the US and in some Western uh, countries, it depends on the country, but in the case of women in the US, the pressure is that we need to take care of people by love and care and, and being the victim that we cannot help ourselves. Somebody has to come and save us. And men have to take care of themselves and the family by giving money, but they're not able to be the ones who have love and compassion. So which I think we need a better balance because there's a lot of there's a lot of circumstances where the women is the bad breadwinner and the men is the one that stays at home. I think more than being it a gender issue, I think it's more about the type of things that we need to do. So if you are if you're a single dad or if you are a stay-at-home dad, you will have certain behaviors and certain questions that single moms and stay-at-home moms have that are not related to gender, are related about what you do. You need to be much more compassionate and caring if you're taking care of kids uh, at home because the kids will tell you. <laughs> They're little tyrants. They would tell you, hey, that's not, I don't like hot chocolate. I want more. Why can't you put more sprinkles? I mean, they would tell you. And, and then you have to negotiate with them, which is a completely different behavior that you develop when you're at work. So I, I, I think it's more related to the things that we need to do than anything else. You know, for me, just making sure that somebody else's voices are not my voices. My voice is very important. So the opinion that somebody else has is their opinion. It's not my opinion. And I think that's very valid. In the case of women, the pressure to take care of the family, to be pretty, to be kind, to never get upset, to never be aggressive. In the case of men, is to be strong, to, to never doubt yourself, to give money, and to be the macho. So it's, it's the same thing. It's just that we look at, at different profilings, uh, but just not allowing somebody else's opinion of you define how you feel and believe about yourself. I think it's the one most important thing that people need to know if they want to be happy. So on a personal note, what do you do for fun? Oh, I do so many things. Absolutely love gardening. My garden, my garden is gorgeous. I love cooking. I'm vegetarian and I grow a lot of my food and I love it. I go to the, to the garden. Like we have asparagus now. I go to the garden and I pick up the things and I make up something. I love spices. So I love experimenting with food. I bring up a little bit of chemistry 
from, from my previous thing. I like languages. So I'm currently after COVID, I started practicing languages. So I, I'm into eight languages and I love that. And I just started taking watercolor. So I just, I just do all of that. The one thing that I don't do is I don't watch TV. So a lot of people are interested. I, I don't watch TV. I don't have a TV. I don't, I don't miss it. Uh, I read, but uh, gardening and cooking is definitely uh, what I do for fun. If I can, I dance. I love dancing uh, and I love uh, swimming in the ocean, but it has to be warm. I mean, the water here in California is so cold. I, I enjoy life. I love playing with my grandkids and going and visiting too. I love traveling. I travel a lot. Yeah, so I do a lot of things for fun. No wonder you have time to do all that because if you have a TV, it just sucks all the time out. You'll be binge watching a Netflix or a Prime series and that's it. Your weekend's gone. So it's, yes, you know what happened is that I'm very active. That's one thing. And then I left my house, my parents' home uh, when I was 18 and I didn't have money to have a TV. So I didn't have a TV. And then when I, and then I got married, we had a TV, but I never got into TV. And then when I got divorced, I left the house again and we didn't have a TV. So my kids grew up without a TV. And that was that was really interesting. It just doesn't capture my, my attention. So in closing, Alicia, this was such a great conversation. But in closing, any final advice for our listeners? Uh, I think it's just, you know, enjoy life. Life is short. I mean, we're, we're dead. I said this in, in a class to a Japanese student and the professor was translating. And, and I said, my last words is the only thing we have to do is die. So she it, it was delightful. So, and, and humor is good too. So she says, the other, the other, the other, the other. and then she turns around and said, I can't say that. And I'm like, yes, yes, you have to say that. And she's like, oh no, I mean, these are kids, you know, these are, there's a college, I can't tell them they have to die. And I'm like, no, the only thing you have to do is die. All the rest you do because you want to. That is a great quote. The only thing we need to do is die. All the rest we do because we want to. So we figure out a way to do something and we're always going to find ways that make us happy, which is the ultimate goal in life. Well, thank you so much for those wise words. <laughs> we'll end with that, but really appreciate your time and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much. A pleasure.